hey, if you have Bibles, go ahead and open those to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26. If you need Bibles, there's some there on the chairs around you. And if you're using one of those, you're going to either go to page 130, or if the Bible that you're using has a flame on the front, page 167. Deuteronomy 26, we're almost done with Deuteronomy. We've got just about two months left of it. Uh, I'll remind you there's an updated reading plan out there. Um, As you exit these doors, there's a credenza right across from our bathroom, and there's an updated reading plan there that'll take us through the end of this book, which will be around October 15th. Um, Let me say something else while you're turning there. I know we've got a lot of visitors this morning, and some of you go to different churches and different types of churches. I know this was probably different for you. So thanks for, for, for sitting through it, for being willing to be here. Um, I know sometimes when things are different that it can be uncomfortable, and uh, I appreciate you being willing to be uncomfortable as you came to support and, and uh, love your family members. Our goal with, with what you, you see, um, there's different church ways, churches when they gather that they do worship. There's not a whole lot in scripture that gives us models for how to do it. A lot of times that just reflects culture or, or um, particular types of churches, but our goal is that when we sing songs, we want those songs to be based on truth right? They point us to the Lord. We want those songs to be songs that are going to stir up our heart's affections because we believe that God himself gave us these emotions. And so we want to love God with our mind, but also our heart, right? So we, we, we have a desire to see those things wedded together. But we also believe that worship is not simply just the music. Worship is everything that we're doing here and then how we live our lives, right? So we're continuing to worship as we now open the word and study. And so that's, that's where we're at now. Glad that you're here, Deuteronomy 26, and I've probably talked long enough to allow you to get there. Um, Speaking of worship, there's one thing that we're going to do for all of eternity. Worship. There's one thing that we're going to do for all of eternity, and that's worship. Now, when you hear me say that, don't think the way we sing songs, that's part of it. But don't think that that's all worship is because worship, as we're going to see this morning, includes more than just simply singing songs or certain types of songs. But sometimes we think when we hear someone say, we're going to be worshiping for all of eternity, our first thought, if we're being honest, is how boring is that? Okay? If I'm being honest, right? Okay, so there's a few things that go into that. One, that's a reflection of our own worship. Sometimes that's a commentary on our own worship. It may also then be a commentary on my own heart, Right? Maybe, maybe I find myself not being um, able to worship, but I'm more of a spectator. And so for me, that then becomes something that, why would I want to do something like that, right? We, we impose on the idea of worship what we have come to believe or been taught that worship is, a certain part of a service where you sing songs. That's not it. That's merely part of it. Singing is a big part of worship. But one thing we're going to do for all eternity is worship, because that's what God's creation was designed to do, to worship. All of creation is designed to worship. Now, everybody in this room is a worshiper of some kind of something. You and I were designed to worship. Now, the question becomes, who or what do we worship? But all of creation has been designed to worship. So much so that Jesus, when he was teaching and rebuking some people that were religious leaders of his day, he said when they were trying to stop people who were worshiping Jesus very loudly, he tried to stop them, and he says, Well, if they're quiet, then the rocks will cry out. All of creation was designed to worship. The people of God are created to worship him, right? So there are things that we do when we gather, like what I'm doing now, teaching. Well, you won't have a need for this 
in all of eternity. Because as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, right now we know in part, but then we will know in full, right? We teach now so that our worship is more accurate and more centralized and oriented where it needs to be. The purpose of our lives is worship. Teaching aids in worship. Teaching fuels worship. It's a part of it, right? But, but it will end, and worship will not. And so this morning, we're, we're wrapping up another major section in the book of Deuteronomy. I told you that the book of Deuteronomy is Moses, a pastor of people coming out of Egypt, the people of Israel, and, and he's wandered around the wilderness for some 40-something years, and a whole generation has died out because of disobedience and disbelief. And so here he stands, having a few battles under his belt, and they're about to go into the land. They're going to cross over the Jordan River into the land that God has promised them. But this is a brand new generation of people, many of them born in the wilderness, many of them not remembering or having experienced what God did for his people as they came out of Egypt, many of them not knowing those experiences. And so Moses is reminding them of these things. He's also teaching them about the covenant that God makes with his people. Because in these sermons, what Moses is doing is he's calling this new generation to recommit themselves to their God as their God commits himself to them. He's also teaching them when you get into the land, there's going to be different types of people. They worship different types of gods. They live different types of ways. You need to know how you are to live in the context of a relationship with your God, Yahweh, your God, the one that brought you out of Egypt because there's no God like him. So these are things you should do and things you shouldn't do. So this, this today, we're wrapping up a major sermon or a message, if you will, of Moses. And then there's several of them shorter as we wrap up the book. But this section started back in chapter 12, where Moses talked about what it looks like for his people to worship. And then he gave all kinds of practical, very specific types of instruction. And then now he's closing it. It's like a sandwich or bookends with worship. Worship on the front. What it looks like to live in faithful obedience to God in the middle. Worship on the end. Whenever the, someone is, is making an argument for something or building a case or in the scripture, when you see things that are bookended like that, there's a similar theme on the front and the back. The, 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 the point is the things in the middle are related to those things on the end, and usually it's trying to draw attention to this. Okay? Worship on the front, what it looks like to faithfully live in obedience to God, worship on the end. So he says, if you'll look with me at chapter 26, here's where we're going this morning. We worship because it is the response to God's revelation. What I mean by that word is God revealing himself. When God reveals himself, that includes him making himself known. That includes him teaching us about who he is. That includes when you read your scriptures. That includes as you pray, and he might reveal things to you as you pray. However God reveals himself, there's a, a, a lot of ways that God can reveal himself. So don't hear that word revelation, and, and because it's a buzzword and it might come have some baggage for you, don't read that in there. I mean, when God reveals himself, there's one response and one response only, worship. That's what, that's what I think we see this morning. We worship because it is the response to God's revelation. And so we're going to walk through chapter 26, and we're going to see some different ways that worship looks like. What does it look like to be a worshiper? What does it look like to worship? And so the first thing we see 
His worship is a response to God's mercy. So look with me at chapter 26, verse 1. Worship is a response to God's mercy. Moses says this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and you have taken possession of it, and you live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Worship is a response to God's mercy. Moses starts out and says, when you come into the land, see, they're not there yet. They're about to enter into the land, and then there is a holy war that has already begun that will continue to take place as the nations that are there will be driven out, and God will then be giving this land that he has promised centuries ago to his people. When you come into that land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it to live in it. So the idea is this. Once you have finished accomplishing the holy war of God, you read about this in Joshua. Uh, you would read about this as, as they're going into the land. Jericho is the first place that they come up against, right? That's where they've crossed over, and they're now starting to, to accomplish God's will, letting his kingdom come to bear here on earth as it is in heaven. He is, he, they are doing his work. And so you see that taking place. Now there's going to come a point where they're going to have driven everyone out, or, or at least most of them out, and they're going to come to rest in that land. They're going to come to live in that land. They're going to come to, to, to cultivate crops in that land. That's the day that Moses is talking about. The day when God's promise comes to fruition. A promise that has been there for centuries because it was given to Abram, right? And then it was given to Isaac, and then it was given to Jacob, and none of them got to see or experience it. But now these people that are about to cross in, they're going to start to taste and see this promise of God for centuries start to come into their possession because there are times where God makes promises, but we don't receive it or we don't receive it in full right then and there, yes. right? And so we're then waiting and we're constantly looking to God, waiting on him. And when we wait on God, that's a place of faith. That's a place of trust where we're saying, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you will do what you say you will do, and I will wait on you. Hebrews chapter 11 covers this as all these people who were looking in faith toward what God had promised. And some achieved it in this life, and some did not. And they were waiting, but what sustained them was that faith, right? When you come into the land and you take possession, when you start to live in the houses and you start to cultivate the ground and you start to have crops, one of the ways that you respond to God's mercy is you worship. He says you take the first of all the fruit of the ground. You set aside the first that, that, that comes up, the best that comes up. You set it aside. It becomes holy to the Lord, set apart for him. And you give that to him and worship. Now he gives instructions because they had a way to handle this. Once you've set aside the first of all the fruit, you're to go to the place that God designates. See, they're not in the land yet when Moses is talking. But remember, there's a tabernacle 
right? This tent that's set up, and within that tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God physically has dwelt there among his people. And whenever the, the cloud by day or fire by night picks up and moves, the people pack up and they follow and they carry it. There's going to come a point when they get into the land where God's going to designate a place where his, his presence is going to dwell there in a very tangible way. Remember, just because God chooses to make his presence dwell in a very tangible, physical way in one place does not mean that he's not everywhere present. He's just allowing and causing his presence there among his people. So when he sets up that place, wherever it is, you're to bring your first fruits there. In other words, you don't worship however you want to, wherever you want to. And in this, in this day, you bring it to the place that God has designated, where his presence is, so that you can enter into his presence with your worship. Okay? So you're going to bring it to the first, the first fruits, to the place that God has designated. You're going to give it to the priests who are, who are there ministering on behalf of God. And so you're going to bring your first fruits, your offering to the priest. And what we see here in this chapter is something that's uncommon throughout the scriptures. And that is there are very particular words given and prescribed for the worshiper to say. Right? Kind of like what we just walked through with the, 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 the prayer from Matthew chapter 6. Right? Uh, Numbers chapter, oh, I think it's chapter 6 at the end. God gives um, Aaron some very specific words to pray. We sung about that this morning. Right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. Right? We're going to see that there's a, a very specific thing they're supposed to say when they bring their, their, their items for worship and when they themselves go to worship. So here's the first one that they see. They say, verse three, you shall go to the priest who is at office at the time and you shall say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And so what the, the worshiper is declaring is I am in and and I am a recipient, I have received that promise that God has given to his people. I declare today that I have come into the land. I am in the place that God has promised to give. I am receiving now the promise of God. God is faithful. He's proclaiming God is faithful. He has shown mercy to his people, and he's proclaiming, I'm receiving that promise. God is faithful. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give. Before I go forward, I'm going to point something out here. Your Bibles, most of your translations, that word Lord is going to be in small caps. And that's the way the English translations, many of them, choose to translate the, the Hebrew word uh, yod heh vav heh. Four consonants, we would oftentimes say Yahweh. That's the name of God, right? And so you'll, you'll know that your translation is doing that if it's in small caps, if that's how your translation is doing that. Now, the, the Jews over the years, because the name of God is holy, they have chosen not to say his name verbally, so a lot of times they'll say in its place, Adonai or something like that, right? But I want you to see something. God gives a very specific prescription of what they should say, and it includes his name. Yes. Because they must know his name. They must know who their God is. His name reveals things about himself. I am, he would say in English, I am. Who should I tell Pharaoh that sent me, Moses said. And God said, tell him I am sent you, right? It's just the verb. It's just the, the to be verb, right? I am. If it was in past tense, it would be I was, right? If it's in future tense, it's I will be. But God said, he revealed it to him in I am. I'm the ever present. I'm the one that's with you. Right? And so he wants them to remember who he is. So I declare today to, Yah to, the, to Yahweh your God that I have come into. This is the God who has delivered us from Egypt. This is the God who is giving us the promised things that he has promised for so many centuries. Worship 
is a response to God's mercy. Right? That's what I do when God extends mercy. I respond with worship. So you take it to the priest, verse four. You take the, he'll take the basket from your hand and he'll set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. The next thing we see as we keep going is that worship expresses joy at God's redemption. Worship expresses joy at God's redemption. So we keep going in, in verse five. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great deeds of terror with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll keep going in verse 10. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Worship is expressing joy at God's redemption. So as this exchange is taking place between the worshiper and the priest, that the worshiper brings the first fruits, and he, 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 he says, I declare, right, that the Lord has put me in the land. The priest takes the basket, puts it down at the altar, and then the worshiper says this, because Moses goes and says, you shall make a response. And they're going to recount this history of the people, because it's important that the redeemed people of God understand that our history is the history of all of the redeemed people of God. And so when you are looking at your history as a believer in Christ, the Old Testament is your history. Because as God delivered his people, God was carrying out his promise to Abraham. When you came to faith in Christ, you are receiving a blessing because of coming um, to faith in Christ, which is the seed of Abraham. You and I's history are inexplicably tied together with the people of God that we read about in the Old Testament. And so the worshiper comes, and they're not just looking at their own individual life, but they're looking at how God has worked among all of his people throughout history, how he has been faithful to bring forth the promise, to carry out the faithfulness to bring the promise that he gave to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob. This is what the worshiper is doing. He's recounting his history. In this case, when he says a wandering air man, he's talking about Jacob. So remember, Abraham got the, the promise, Genesis 12. It was passed on to his son, Isaac. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, and the promise was passed on to his son, Jacob, who was the younger. And so in this case, they're starting with Jacob, who also became known as Israel, right? Because then Jacob had the 12 sons, and that's where we get the tribes of Israel. So they start with Jacob, and he was a wanderer. He had to go down to Egypt because he was oppressed by his father-in-law, Laban. So he goes down into Egypt. He's, he's a foreigner. He's a traveler, a sojourner there. They were few in number. You catch this at the, at the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus. They go in, there's 70 of them. There in Egypt, God grew his people. There in Egypt, the people of Israel went from 70 to hundreds of thousands, where they would eventually come out. 
And so they're recounting God's faithfulness. They remember that they were slaves. They were enslaved to a people. At some point, Egypt became uh, oppressive toward them because the Pharaoh didn't remember who Joseph was. And that's why they were being kind to the people of Israel. And so they're to remember the oppression of the people of Egypt where they were slaves because that shapes and changes how they live now, once having been enslaved, but now being set free and redeemed. They treated us harshly. And they humiliated us. They laid on us hard labor. They are to remember that they cried out to the Lord. The people of God were crying out to the Lord and God heard them and he acted and he stepped in on their behalf. The Lord, verse eight, brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. When it talks about the mighty hand, we're talking about the plagues. We're talking about the power of God that is demonstrated and which he showed definitively through the Exodus. Every plague was a judgment on another God, little g. Every God that Egypt worshiped was put to shame because God showed in each of those plagues, I'm greater than this God. I'm greater than this God. I am greater than this God. And when he brought them out, he had put judgment on one of their greatest, most holy gods, Pharaoh himself, with the death of the firstborn, the one who was supposed to succeed Pharaoh, he took him out. The line of succession was gone and God was showing himself as more powerful, he was demonstrating with his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, signs and wonders. So much so that the people of Israel now came to know that this is their God and he is greater than all else. So much so that the people of Egypt and all the other nations heard about what this God did and they feared him. As is right for us to fear God when he extends his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and he has performed great deeds of terror. But look what keeps going as they're recounting their history and they're gonna say in verse 10, behold, I bring the first fruits. So now they're, they're brought up to this part where this is why I'm bringing my worship because this is what God has done for us. This is how he's been faithful. We're here today in this land with this crop because God has been faithful to fulfill a promise. That's why I'm here today. That's why I'm bringing forth some of what God has given me the first and the best of what he's given me. And then he says, you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Now, I don't know. My tendency is probably like your tendency. When I read words, I impose my, my own understanding, my own English understanding, my own Western understanding on that. And so when I, I read that, I might think, oh, okay, so they're supposed to sing before him. Because that's what oftentimes when we hear worship, we think worship is, oh, they're supposed to sing before them. Or, or there's certain things maybe they're going to be reciting. But do you, do you know when he says, you are to set it down before the Lord your God, and you are to worship before the Lord your God. You know, you know what that is? You lie prostrate. Maybe, maybe you're down like this. And you go down and you lie prostrate because your physical posture is telling something. Your physical posture is humiliating and your physical posture is placing you in the right and proper place before the God who has redeemed you. Because the only thing that we can do before the God who has redeemed us is come with humility because I bring nothing to contribute to what he did. I am a recipient of his mercy. And so my posture, physically, actively worshiping, getting down before him is speaking of my heart. And it is speaking of how I view him. And so when they bring their offering, they are to lay down before him. 
And then they're to rejoice. They are to rejoice in all the good that your God has given you. Now, I would ask you this. When I read rejoice, I'm not, if you know me, I'm not, I'm not really, um, my emotions, they stay pretty, pretty tame. They, they stay within a very narrow circle. I'm not saying that's necessarily a positive thing. It's just how I, how I am, okay? I have a very narrow span for my, my emotions, whereas more people, maybe they might have a, a wider span, right? Okay, mine's pretty narrow. You would not likely describe me as an emotional person. If things are going bad, I have the same face as if things are going good, <laughs> right? You're laughing because you are like that or you know somebody like that, right? So when I hear rejoice, I might think, for me, I'm going, well, I'm rejoicing. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> right? But I would have you consider this. If, if part of what they're doing in worship is I'm getting down and I'm, and I'm laying before the Lord and then he says rejoice, do you think the rejoicing is going to be? Praise God. Because the worship of God's people is active. It involves their whole person. It involves not just an, an assent of the mind to agree to a certain set of facts, not just words from the mouth that, that state who God is and how they're responding to God, but it includes all of that. It includes the heart that is bowed before the Lord and God having created our emotions, it includes us bringing those emotions before him. And he says, rejoice because he has given you something you don't deserve. He has given you something that you did not earn, and it is a promise that many before you have come and gone and not seen fulfilled, but you, the people that Moses is speaking to, you got to, to experience it, and so you bring your first fruits. And so now I just ask, if you've been the recipient of God's mercy, what does it look like to bring first fruits? You may not be a farmer. You may not be cultivating crops. You may not have something that, that you can physically bring. But, but what, what does it look like for you, having received God's mercy, what does it look like to bring to the one whose mercy you have received, to bow before him and to worship him and rejoice at his redemption? What does that look like? Because worship is expressing joy at God's redemption. Worship includes managing God's resources for God's glory. Managing God's resources for God's glory. And for that, we're going to jump in at verse 12. Worship is managing God's resources for God's glory. So he says, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. And moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. He'll keep going, verse 14. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Worship includes managing God's resources, God's way. There was already instruction. We've covered it at this point in Deuteronomy. About every third year, they were to tithe uh, a certain way. Now, they tithe every year, but every third year, the tithe then went to the Levite, 
because the Levite, a particular tribe of Israel, did not have their own land. Instead, they were scattered among all the other tribes because they were the priests. They were the ones who were ministering before the Lord. So they didn't have crops to cultivate. They didn't have things that they could pass on. And so every third year, you would give your tithe to the, to the Levites, to the sojourner, those who were traveling. They, they might not be from your nation, but they're traveling among you. Those who had been orphaned, and those who have been widowed, you're taking care of the most vulnerable people among you because God is concerned about the vulnerable. And God's people must take care of the vulnerable among them. That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. And so God uses his own people. This is not government welfare, right? We said God uses his own people to care for those among them who are vulnerable, right? That's what he's referencing here. So when you've done that, he says, every third year, and you've set aside that portion that is the tithe, you don't touch it. It's not for you to eat on. It's set apart to God and God alone, right? And so they're going to make this declaration. I've not touched it. I've not eating on, eaten on it when I've mourned. I've given it to the people I'm supposed to give it to. I've, I've removed the sacred portion out of my house, okay? It's no longer common. I've taken it out of my house, I've not transgressed any of your commandments. I'm doing with it as you have instructed. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. Why? Because remember, we've talked about all throughout Deuteronomy and throughout the scriptures, the voice of God. It's not, it's not just when you hear voice you think audible. The scriptures reference the voice of God is his presence. The voice of God is his instruction. Right? When he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, he's saying, I've obeyed the instruction. I've obeyed the things that God has revealed regarding the tithe. I've, I've been obedient in that case. I've done according to all that you commanded me. So now, then he, he asks for the blessing. Verse 15, look down from your holy habitation from heaven. Bless your people, Israel, and the ground. And the ground that you have given us. So part of worship is, what has God given me? How do I use what God has given me to care for the vulnerable? How do I use what God has given me to bring him glory? How do I use what God has given me to bring him glory? Whatever that looks like. How do I do that? But worship is included in how I do that. And lastly, worship seeks the fullness of God. Seeks the fullness. Worship seeks the fullness of God. Verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands to, do, to you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. Worship seeks the fullness of God, all that he has promised. What you see here is Moses bringing this part of his message to an end where he's calling the people to recommit. You've, you've been obedient. You've declared your faithfulness and allegiance to God. And now this day, God is declaring his faithfulness and allegiance to you. Remember this new generation, right? Part of what that comes with, when you get God's favor, God's love set upon you, because he doesn't set it upon everyone the same way. Right? He didn't set it upon every nation the same way. We, we read about, uh, well, we will read about in Deuteronomy 32, how God at the Tower of Babel, he scattered the nations. 
And when he scattered the nation, he put them under the rule of other beings. But it says in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, he inherited Israel or Jacob for himself. He took for himself and made a people that he intended to put his favor upon and his special blessing upon. And he was going to lift them up above all others, not to the exclusion of all others, but that through them all others might then be drawn into him. When you receive the redemption of God, you get brought into that promise. Paul in Romans chapter 11 would talk about how non-Jewish people, they're called Gentiles, how they're grafted in to the olive branch, although we're wild. We're grafted in. Well, what's, what are we grafted into? We're grafted in the people of God that already exist. Right? And so we then, our history, when we are grafted in, our history becomes their history. It's now our history. Right? We are now part of the people of God that have been in existence. Right? And so when we consider that we are then brought in, we are now receiving the promise of Abraham and we will receive it in full in the kingdom and in the new heavens and new earth. Right? We, we find out that God sets his fame and his honor high above all others. Now that doesn't produce in me pride. That does not produce in me pride. What it produces in me is humility. Because when I realize that God's favor is not on me because of who I am. It's not on me because of what I've done. It's on me because I'm in his son, by faith in his son. And he is now free to put all of his favor, all of his blessing, all of his praise upon me because he is being faithful to himself and to his promise. And he lifts me up above all others. And that provokes worship. It provokes worship. So we worship because it's the response to God's revelation. But in talking about worshiping as God's people, is it possible that God's people can flounder in their worship? Is it possible that God's people can go through motions and call it worship and yet it not be pleasing to God? Old Testament and then a New Testament. This is Isaiah chapter one. As God's writing to his people and he sees them going after other gods. They've been in the land for a while now. He's warned them through prophets. And he, he, he sees them committing adultery with other gods, worshiping other gods. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's comparing his people to that of Sodom. Give ear to teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's comparing his people to Sodom and Gomorrah because of the way they're living their lives. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Now, did God command them to bring sacrifices? Yeah. But what he's getting at is, what is your sacrifices to me? Because of what's behind it. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? That's how God sees their worship when they've gone astray, when they're worshiping other gods. You're trampling in my courts. You're checking off the box. You're bringing me what, what, what the letter says, but your heart is not there. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. That's how God views his people's worship when it's empty. It's a vain offering. And bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, festivals, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in Solomon's assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. 
the people of God's worship, because it was empty and vain, had become a burden to the God they were worshiping or thought they were. Verse 15, I, or right before 15, I am weary of bearing them. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. That doesn't sound like a God that we often preach about, teach about, talk about. A God who hides, but when his people are trampling his courts and they think they're being pleasing to him and they think that what they're bringing, well, God's just gonna be happy with that because he loves me. We must not take lightly. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. All of that his people had stopped doing. And yet they're coming and worshiping God in name. And yet their lives did not reflect it. You remember I started out, I said Deuteronomy 12 started this section and it talked about worship. And then Deuteronomy 26 ends this section and it talks about worship. And in between those two was what it looks like to live practically and faithfully obedient to God because worship cannot be disconnected from living in faithful obedience to God. Worship is fueled and expressed in living in faithful obedience to God. If we bring vain offerings, which throughout the week I'm living however I want, I come in here and I put on a front, it is not pleasing to God, the very one we're coming to please with our worship, right? So God is concerned about our hearts, our heart's posture, and what it looks like when we worship. And he is not impressed. He is not impressed by the things that we might be impressed by. New Testament example real quick. This is the Apostle Paul. What happens when God's people don't worship him? He says in Romans 1, 21, for although they knew God, so they, they knew who he was, that he was the supreme being, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Part of worship is thanksgiving. So what happens when you fail to worship God, part of which is failing to thank him? We've talked about the first fruits offering. That was a, a way of thanking God for his mercy. Paul says people know God, they did not honor him as God, they did not give thanks to him, but instead they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When we fail to worship God, when we fail to thank him as God, to acknowledge him as God, we become empty in our thinking. We think that what we're doing is good and pleasing, but it's empty. We, we become foolish in our hearts and they become darkened. We don't care about the things of God. We care about our things, right? We, we start to pursue those things. We think that we're wise, but we're actually becoming fools. And we exchange the very glory of the immortal God and we start worshiping created things. This is what it looks like when people fail to worship God. When God's people fail to worship God. God, God wants worshipers. More than anything else, God wants worshipers because every bit of creation was created to worship God. And every person in here, we are worshipers. The question is, what are we worshiping? Now, it only, only when the Spirit of God comes and makes me new Am I now able to worship God in the way that is pleasing to him from a new place of life and of hope and of peace and of joy? If I come 
and I've not been made new by the Spirit of God, I am simply going through religious motions. And it is not pleasing, and it will earn me nothing. It will only displease God, cause him to hide his face from me, and he will view it as vain and empty and a trampling of his courts. But when, through faith in Jesus, I then receive the promised spirit who gives new life from above, he takes me from death to life. I now have a new orientation, a new nature from which I can now go and enter into the presence of God, from which I can now go and worship that I didn't previously have. And so as the spirit is making me new and quickening me, my heart's desires change and my thoughts start to change and the things that I long for start to change and I start to long for the things of God more than the things of the world. I start to surrender all areas of my life. All areas of my life start to come into alignment with him as the spirit is working on me over time in kindness. That's when I can bring worship to God that is pleasing. We worship because it's the response to God's revelation. And one of the ways that God revealed himself the clearest, the invisible God made himself visible was in Jesus the Son. And it is through Jesus the Son that the way was made for people who were far off to be brought near for people who were dead in their trespasses and sins to be made alive together with Christ because of the mercy of God. Have you come near to God through Christ? If you haven't, then your worship is vain and God desires more, has more, wants more for you. Through Christ, faith in his death and his resurrection, you can receive new life and you will receive now a new orientation to which you're now able to worship in a way you've never experienced. And maybe then some of us who, who have been made new, maybe when you say, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me from where I've fallen from my first love to return back to that so that our worship is pleasing to you and you alone. And so Father, would you now come and let your spirit come and help us understand this from your word. Your spirit is our teacher, so help us to understand the things that we've seen in your word. Help us to understand and grasp the things that we may not be able to understand. And then show us what it looks like to live in light of what you're teaching us this morning from your word, how you're revealing yourself. Show us the areas of our lives that need to come more into alignment with your kingdom, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And show us where our worship needs to be revitalized where maybe we are offering vain offerings and we think it's pleasing to you, but we've never even asked. Show us our hearts that we might be a people who worship you with all that we are because you say, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Here in just a moment, we're going to dismiss, but if you would like prayer for anything. Uh, we've got some prayer team members available. If you're part of the prayer team, if you'll just grab one of those lanyards at the back there and then make your way up front here so that you're identifiable. They're there to pray with you about anything that's going on, whether that's something in the sermon where you have questions about what does it mean to trust in the gospel, whether that's, hey, I've got prayer. I need, I need prayer for sickness on this or, or that. They're there for all of that. And so prayer team, you can go ahead and make your way up if you're available. So Father, as we depart from here now, would you bless your people? 
and make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. See you next week.